Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. Join me, if you would, in prayer, please. Lord, uh, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for calling us, Lord, out of our sleep this morning and into the worship of your gathered bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord God, we thank you for calling us out of our sin and into life in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done among us, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you, Father, for our worship this morning. We thank you, Lord, for our music and our liturgy and our time of confession. Lord, we pray, God, that you would continue to pour out your spirit among us this morning as we hear your word taught and proclaimed, Lord, as we Eucharist with one another, Lord, as we confess our faith together, Lord, and sing again. Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, as, I get, as we get started this morning, I um, kind of want to briefly kind of echo what, what Connor actually started out with. Um, Trinity Sunday is, it's a celebration for us in the church, but it, it has an interesting history. Um, much like many of the feast days in the Christian calendar that we're all familiar with, Trinity Sunday is one of those that we don't really have a whole lot of recorded history from the earliest days of the church, at least not that I could find. Right? What I could find, now I'm a history nerd, so I have to give you some of the history, right? So um, the earliest mention of Trinity Sunday that I could find in Christian history is from the early 900s where Pope Gregory VII mentions that in some places, quote-unquote, some places recite a liturgy of the Holy Trinity on the first Sunday after Pentecost, which is today. Our creed today from Athanasius will echo that to some degree. And so while we rightly, and we constantly, as Connor said, stress the triune nature of the Godhead every single week in our liturgy and in our prayers and our songs, our teaching, our creeds, Trinity Sunday serves kind of like a route marker for us, right? If you, if you, I don't hike much, so the hikers in the room would know about this more than I would, but I've read books about like the Appalachian Trail, right? Right, and the, uh, the trailblazes, right? That, so Trinity Sunday is kind of like a trailblaze for us because of exactly where it is placed within the calendar. Today is technically the first Sunday of ordinary time, but it is also a celebration day. We approach Trinity Sunday kind of in the same way that, a, that an excited kid clings to the days after Christmas, right? Or the days after his or her birthday, right? They're, they're longing for the celebration to continue, but, but they know that it's time to get back to the regular ebb and flow of life. 
Because after Trinity Sunday, everything becomes different. Right? We begin a long season of what's called quiet Sundays, where we wait and we count the Sundays until the time of celebration can begin again. But this doesn't mean that the season of ordinary time is boring or useless or unnecessary. Rather, ordinary time becomes a season of action, which is why our passage from Matthew 28 is such a great text to kick off a season of counting. Because the Great Commission really gives us our thesis for ordinary time. Because it answers some of the questions like, what do we do now that the celebration is over? Right? If, if you're like us on Christmas morning, you, know, you, you have your celebration, we leave our Christmas tree up, and I'm sure some of you, some of you do our Christmas decorations up until Epiphany, right? until what my great-grandmother called you know, Old Christmas. Right? Um, but once the decorations are down and the living room looks different, like what, what do we do now that the decorations have been put away? Right? Everything looks a little different. It feels odd. So now what? Well, I've been here for a few years now, so you, you guys know this. I've never been one of those pastors or preachers that likes to title my sermons. Right? I'd, every pastoral ministry class that I had to take for my master's degree told me that you need to title your sermons, which I immediately disagreed with. Right? You need to title your sermons because it helps with memory retention. Right? Well, okay, I'm fine with that. Right? Titles help us remember. Right? For those of us that have ever read Return of the King, you know when you hear the phrase, the return of the king, what that is about, right? Or, or the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Or if you are a, a bit of a nerd, like I am and a few others, you go to a movie theater and you see giant yellow bubble letters that say Star Wars on the screen. You know exactly what to expect for the next couple of hours, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's absolutely horrible, right? But titles help us remember, right? But they also give us an idea of where something is going, and the same with sermon titles, right? You kind of give you an idea of where a sermon is going if it's titled. But I personally found titling sermons absolutely tedious, right? Because I always feel like I'm having to force a title, right? You, you put together your notes, and then you have to come up with this kitschy little title that, that is helpful, and I hate it. I absolutely hate it. So there is my confession this morning, right? I hate titling sermons. But this is why I love the lectionary, right? Because it may not spark excitement, but the third Sunday of Lent, or the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, tells us where we are in the life of the church more than a quirky title. And to be honest, it's a whole lot easier on me to just say, today is the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, or today, Trinity Sunday. But, as you have no doubt inferred, I actually decided to title the sermon this morning. Right? But only because of the way in which Matthew records how Jesus gives us the Great Commission. And so the title is this. If you like to take notes, you're welcome to write it down. You're welcome to forget it the moment that we're done. It's okay. But the title is this. A mountaintop, a word, and a name. All right? And in this moment, to my chagrin and to all of my pastoral ministry professor's delight, you now know exactly the direction that this, that this sermon is going to go this morning. <laughs> but hopefully, even with this silly title, you will remember some of the details, again, in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead as you read this passage again. But even still, that doesn't mean that I'm going to make a habit of titling my sermon. So if you hate sermon titles as much as I do, don't worry. Next week will be the second Sunday after Pentecost. Right? But anyway, with this title, though, actually, it actually really does help display the directive through ordinary time that the Sermon on the Mount, and oh, excuse me, that the Great Commission actually gives us until 
Christ returns. And so starting then on the mountaintop, we read those first two verses again. He says this, now, and now is a transitional word in Scripture, and Matthew uses it, Paul uses it all the time, right? But so now, he's, he's moving us along. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So for me, when I'm, when I'm working on sermons and, and Bible studies and stuff, I like to ask questions in order to try to give me some kind of direction on how to move forward, right? So when I read these things, to me, my brain says, well, everyone else is going to ask these questions too, so I'm going to give you the questions that were going through my head, right? So why, why a mountain, right? It's, this is after the resurrection of Christ. Um, why, why a mountain, right? Uh, what could be the purpose of commanding them to go to a mountain? And which mountain, right? I mean, this area of the world has quite a few mountains. Does the mountain itself has, have any kind of significance to what is about to take place? Well, the fact that I'm asking these questions means that I obviously think so, which is why I put them in here, why I'm, you know, proclaiming them to you, right? So, but I also think this idea of a mountain helps to understand not only the Great Commission itself, but again, this directive as we live between the Advents. Mountains, and we've talked about this quite a bit, just even this celebratory season, mountains are a recurring location and a recurring theme throughout all of Scripture, right? And especially through most of the celebratory season. Most of our high days take place on mountaintops. And again, we've discussed the significance of mountains a few times already this year. Chris did it a few weeks ago on Ascension Sunday, right? Mountains are the place of God's revelation to his people. Now, this is intentional because of these false worship idols that have been set up on mountaintops. God redeems those and says, I am the true God, right? But Moses, Moses receives the law on a mountain. Elijah goes to that same mountain to receive comfort and, direct, and a directive from God while he flees the wrath of Jezebel. Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John on a mountain. Back during the season of Lent, we read Psalm 121, which begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills, or to the mountains, and I lift them up for help, and from where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Right? Yahweh, in his wisdom and in his knowledge, has chosen mountaintops to be a place of special revelation to his people. And what Matthew is doing here is he's, he's reminding us, he's wanting us to be sure that our attention is rightly focused upon Jesus' use of commanding them to go to a mountain. And really what Matthew is getting at here is one specific reason. Jesus commands them to go to a mountain because Jesus is claiming the authority and oneness with Yahweh God himself. And so notice that in our text, Matthew uses in this one verse, in verse 16, he uses a particular geographical detail about this mountain that should recall for all of Matthew's readers Jesus' use of a mountain earlier in this gospel. In verse 16, we read that the 11, they go to a mountain in Galilee, so now, why, why is this significant, right? Why is this particular mountain important? Well, absolutely, because starting in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus delivers the law of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount in a mountain in Galilee. And now the Great Commission is given on a mountain also in Galilee. And as with all things in Scripture, this is not a coincidence. This is not an incidental detail. Jesus' choice 
and directing his disciples and ordering, commanding his disciples to go to a mountaintop in Galilee was significant for this commission that he is about to give them for two reasons. First, Jesus' teaching ministry with his disciples began, began and it now ends on a mountain, the place of Yahweh's revelation of his commands and his laws to his people. But second, this mountain, just like the Sermon on the Mount, is not only in Galilee, but, is, but it is in Galilee of the Gentiles. Back during the season of Epiphany, I believe, we read this in Matthew chapter 4. Right after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we, we see in Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So just like how his earthly ministry began, Jesus now directs the proclamation of the good news of his death and burial and resurrection to expand beyond the boundaries of Judaism to the Gentiles through the ministry of his body and his bride, the church. But then notice in verse 17, Matthew tells us something quite interesting here. He says this, he says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So we've talked about this throughout most of Eastertide, but these 11 had seen the resurrected Jesus more than once by this point. right? They had spoken to the resurrected Christ. They had even eaten with him. right? They see that he is a flesh and blood body. They have touched that real flesh and blood body. Thomas declares him my Lord and my God after that experience. And so Matthew, what he's doing here by, by giving us this one verse... He's, he's actually really helping out all of his readers, not only his original audience, but us 2,000 years later, because what he's doing is not only transitioning this narrative for us, he's not only preparing us to live in a world where Christ has now ascended and returned to the Father, but he's also being quite helpful and honest because he's not hiding the fact that some of them had their own doubts. Even after seeing, speaking to, eating with, and touching the resurrected body of Christ. Matthew's being very honest with their, with their doubts here. And, and Chrysostom writes this. He said, we should actually admire Matthew's truthfulness in this verse. Because even up to the last day, Chrysostom said, they were determined not to conceal even their own shortcomings. This really speaks volumes to us on Trinity Sunday. Especially as we now transition from the celebratory season to ordinary time or this season of counting where we are reminded that we are still waiting in these time between the advents. And Matthew, what he's doing is he is inviting us really into a moment of, of fear and heightened anxiety that these 11 disciples would have felt within this moment. And so with that in mind, we can really understand while some doubted, but while others worshipped and worshipped boldly. But speaking of their doubt, what, what could their doubt tell us about our own doubts, right? What... Were they wrong to doubt in that moment? And really, is, is doubt antithetical to worship of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
digging into the language here is actually quite helpful, and I'm going to butcher this word, so Connor, I'm going to rely on you to, re- to correct me after the worship, right? So, the, there's a Greek word that Matthew uses here, and I didn't do Greek as well as I did Hebrew, right? But Matthew uses a word called distazo, I believe that's right, but I have a hard time understanding it. So, but this word in the Greek means hesitation or to waver. It doesn't mean unbelief. In the message paraphrase, it reads this way, and I think this is quite helpful. He says, the moment that they saw him, they worshipped him. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship. Right? Matthew is very intentional with his words here. And, and we need to be careful how we understand what's happening within the scene before we ever get to the Great Commission. We usually skip verses 16 and 17 because 18, 19, and 20 are the best parts, right? But we have to be careful with how we handle this. We have to be careful with how we talk about it, with how we describe it when we're talking about these disciples where we read that some doubted. Because Matthew is not suggesting any kind of unbelief. Rather, he is suggesting that some of them were hesitant to worship in this moment. So were they wrong to be hesitant to worship Christ? One commentator writes here, he says, perhaps maybe the issue is this. He says, perhaps, just like in other post-resurrection accounts, there was something about Jesus' appearance that makes him hard to recognize at first. Right? Now, we remember, right, especially in Luke 24, that the, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus were kept from seeing him. There's something different about him while being the same. He's in a resurrected, glorified body. The commentator goes on, he says, Most likely, though, these some that Matthew mentions may be continuing to exhibit an understandable confusion about how to behave in the presence of a supernaturally manifested, exalted, and holy being. Some of the disciples worshipped at once, but some of them were less sure. And just in case we're tempted to forget that although some of them may have hesitated or had uncertainty within this moment, consider how, with the help of the, the later indwelling Holy Spirit, through his comfort and through his embolden, him emboldening them and him empowering them, how their doubt completely disappeared and disappeared to the point of death. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was tied to an X-shaped cross somewhere in what I think is now Russia. And while he wasn't nailed, that meant he died over the course of multiple days, and he preached the entire time until he died. Thomas was impaled on spears. Philip was hanged. Matthew was stabbed. Bartholomew was said to have been skinned alive. Herod had James, the son of Zebedee, either beheaded or impaled. Depends on how your translation of the book of Acts reads. James the Less was either stoned and clubbed to death or crucified and then sawn in two. Simon the Zealot was crucified, and Thaddeus, or Judas, not Iscariot, was shot with arrows. And here's the point. The only reason I bring this up. Hesitation, uncertainty in the midst of worship is common for most of us at one point or another in our walk with Christ. So were the disciples wrong to hesitate in this moment? I don't think so. Because within this moment, these 11, like many of us, are still trying to figure out exactly what's happening in this moment. They're still growing in their understanding of Christ. They're still growing in their faith. They're still trying to figure out the reality of his bodily resurrection. And they were, to put it plainly, they were still maturing. And so, if you're hesitant this morning, or next week, or last week, or all week, stop beating yourself up over these moments of uncertainty. 
Because even the apostles had those moments. Having hesitation and doubt is a natural and understandable response sometimes. But the great thing here is that God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his patience, still loves us in those moments. And by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, God then emboldens us and he empowers us, just like he did these 11, to go and to proclaim the good news of Christ, regardless of the dangers, and sometimes even to the point of death. So that's the mountaintop. With that stated, look at the word of the commission that Jesus then gives from the mountaintop. He says this in verse 18, starting, he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We'll stop there. So remember, again, Moses received the law on a mountain, and Elijah received a command to return and confront Ahab and Jezebel on a mountain. These are directives. These are commissions. These are commands from Yahweh to his people that he expects them to obey and to carry out. Jesus, then, by giving this word of the Great Commission on a mountain, is once again claiming the authority of Yahweh. He's not just commanding them to go to a mountain, but he's going and then giving them a command to go down and to follow and to obey. And Jesus can only make this claim if he is truly God. And because of this authority that he then proclaims in verse 18, this authority that has been given to him, Jesus now has the absolute sovereignty to issue this commission. But he also has the power and the authority to help us to be obedient to it. Jerome writes here, he says, Authority was given to Christ in both heaven and on earth, so that he who once reigned in heaven might also reign on earth through the faith of his believers. In our lectionary today, one of the other readings for today from the Old Testament comes from Genesis chapter 1, all the way through Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, so the entire creation account. Again, that's not incidental. That's not a coincidence. After the creation of man and woman in chapter 1, God proclaims to them, he says this, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Similar to the work of creation, Jesus has made all things new in his death and in his resurrection. And now with the complete authority of Yahweh, both in heaven and on earth, Christ proclaims a new creation mandate or a new creation word in this great commission. And it has the same goal. Be fruitful and multiply. And every aspect of the great commission is rooted in this new creation command. Just look at how Jesus orders this again. He says this, go, go, be fruitful and multiply. Go and make disciples. Making disciples is the primary command of this new creation word. We are to intentionally, as his people, to duplicate ourselves by making disciples. Our Orthodox friends write this in, in one of their notes. They say, the power of the resurrection is not only for Jesus himself, but it is given to all believers for life and for mission in Christ. And so how are we to be fruitful and multiply? He tells us we are to do it by making disciples through baptism and through discipleship. He says, go, be fruitful and multiply, make disciples, 
baptize them, and teach them everything that I have taught to you. This is the goal of every evangelism effort. This right here. This is not a command for blind conversion, but rather for intentional discipleship. Having someone profess faith in Christ is not the singular goal for sharing the gospel. Turning them into a disciple of Christ is. The definition of a disciple from Merriam-Webster is this. Someone who accepts and then assists in spreading the teachings of another. So the work of making disciples only begins with a profession of faith in Jesus from the unbeliever. But the work continues as they are baptized and then taught how to actually be a disciple. One commentator writes here, he says, while making disciples is the central focus of the whole commission, not only then does the post-resurrection Jesus launch the universal mission of the church, but he also launches baptism as the primary sacrament of initiation into the Christian faith. And so note here that in the qualifier of baptism here in verse 19, this is the key to understanding how the Great Commission becomes a new creation word from Yahweh. Make disciples is the command, but baptism is the key. Because just like how Yahweh brought order to the chaotic waters of creation, we see this in Genesis 1 through 3, now, in the new creation, in the new beginning in Christ, our triune God is bringing order to the chaotic waters of our fallen sinfulness in the waters of our baptism. Teaching obedience to all of Jesus' commands forms the heart of our discipleship, demonstrating to us once again that our evangelism efforts must be completely holistic. Outreach, evangelism, must rightly be balanced by discipleship. You can't have one without the other. To neglect one over the other, regardless of which one it is, is sinful either way. So think of it really in light of Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says this. He says that we, speaking of all the church, we are all ambassadors for Christ. And God makes his appeal to the world through us, his ambassadors. And since every Christian is an ambassador for Christ, then we must be sent out with training. Right? We must be sent out with the skills and with the knowledge and with the faith and the discipline to properly represent the nation to which we come from to the nations to which we are going. And we must know what and whom we are proclaiming as we are called to give an account about the nation that we come from. Remember, a disciple is one who accepts and who then assists in spreading the teaching of another. This is what makes us ambassadors. But we're not commanded to do it alone, nor are we commanded to, do, commanded to do it under our own authority. We are authorized by, and our efforts are done in, the name of our triune God. Which is that third little point of our quirky little title today. So listen to what he says again. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, continue to keep that mountaintop in mind. Because similar to Moses' word, and similar to Elijah's word, all disciples are sent out in the power of Yahweh, because it is in his name by which we are baptized, discipled, and have faith in.
If something is done in the name of someone or something, it means declaring allegiance to that person or to that thing or associating with the power and the authority of that name. This is why very patriotic people say the Pledge of Allegiance to their countries or when you watch the Olympics and people get emotional when they're singing their national anthems, they know that it is being associated with the entirety of their country and their national identity. And the name, being baptized in the name of our triune God, what it does is it adds meaning to our baptisms. Because not only does God bring order out of the chaotic waters of our sinfulness, but he also brings believers into the protection of, under the authority of, and through the empowerment of his own name. When we are baptized in and discipled in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are brought under his lordship and into relationship with a God who has gone to the greatest of lengths to bring us into fellowship with himself, just so that we might become ambassadors and go to the ends of the earth proclaiming his goodness and his mercy and his grace. In our baptisms in the name of the triune God, we are given our complete and true identities in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us back once again, to the theme of identity that we began the entire celebratory season with. I remembered it because I was having to preach on it, but I'm telling you about it again. (laughs) Because if you remember, when we began in Advent, Christ in his incarnation has identified with us so that through his death and burial and resurrection, we might be able to identify with him by grace through faith in him. And so for us, the work of ordinary time is to call people to identify in the God who has identified with us in the incarnation and in the death and in the resurrection of Christ Jesus in order to redeem us. But notice as we close out here that Jesus, though, he leaves us in this passage with a promise. I did not forget to read that last sentence. And so as we prepare to become his ambassadors through ordinary time, as we prepare to go and be fruitful and multiply and to make disciples... He says this, he says, Behold, I am with you always. This is a word of comfort, but it's also a proclamation about being baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Because there is power in that name. And in the name of our triune God, there is power to save. Peter proclaims in Acts 4, he says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is not a promise from Christ just until our deaths. And it's not a promise from Christ just until he returns. It's a promise, as the ESV reads here in our bulletins, to the end of the age. Or more literally translated, forever and ever. And if you want to be like a kid, ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Right? So are you hesitant this morning, right? Don't, that's, that's fine, but don't fear. Because you have been authorized by and empowered by and sent out in the powerful name of Yahweh, who is the maker of heaven and earth, to be his ambassador, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with his name and to be his appeal to the world through you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chrysostom writes here, he says, Do not speak as though Jesus says, 
excuse me, he says, do not speak to me of the difficulties that you will face. For Jesus says, I am with you. So do not fear and do not shudder. Let us instead repent while there is still opportunity. And let us rise up out of our sins. For by grace we can if we are willing. So let's go. And let's be fruitful and multiply. Let's fill the earth. Let's make disciples. And let's baptize them in the name of our triune God. And let's teach them to observe everything that Christ has taught us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.